Rusty Quill presents. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at BlueNile.com for fifty dollars off your purchase. BlueNile.com code Listen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to another episode of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. I'm your host, Tyler Bell, writer-creator of the West Side Fairy Tales. And uh, welcome, welcome to July of 2022. Man, we are in it. Hot as hell outside. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, so I expect it to be hot. You know, it's going to be 101, 102 at the worst times of the uh, of the summer, which is pretty much like last month. Nowadays, it's like a balmy 85 to 98 during the day, depending on uh, you know how the weather's working out and plenty of rain and and clouds to kind of keep it cool on a lot of the intercessionary days. Let's say we're going to be in rain about half the time. So, you know, we're staying nice and cool, but I cannot say the same, apparently, for our uh, listeners out in the United Kingdom. Uh, my heart goes out to you guys. Oh, man. After, uh, after I, I think, for the last 20 years, Um, Since I've been using the internet, I have heard people in Britain uh, talking so much shit about the ways that uh, that Americans build houses. You build your houses out of sticks. How what comes? What happens if the the the, the big bad wolf comes along and just blows it down? Um, but now apparently, uh, the way that they've been building houses for the last five hundred years no longer uh, takes into account our new atmosphere. That we uh, we have created for ourselves as a species, and um, they are getting their eyeballs smoked out of their heads. It's wild because you know I, I grew up in Cincinnati, even, and it just gets hot where I am uh, in the Midwest. All of America gets hot as hell. We're actually um, pretty spread out. You know, I think a third of America is just arid desert. You know, and a lot of the other parts of it are like subtropical and stuff. 
And I, I don't know anything about those kind of biomes. I'm, I'm, I'm half talking out of my ass, but I will say it just gets hot as hell through, uh, everywhere, everywhere I've ever lived in America. There's only places that get hot in summer and places that get hotter. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I'm used to temperatures pushing a hundred degrees just my entire life, but apparently that's not the case in the United Kingdom. Apparently over there, people, um, are, it's rare for the weather to get over like, I guess, 80 something or something like that. I don't know what, what exactly is 40 degrees Celsius. I, I don't care to learn Celsius because it doesn't matter to me. 40 is 104. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, you guys are about to get it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let's see what 20 is. 20 is 68. So 20 degrees Celsius is like, uh, I guess, is how high it normally gets is nice. And then you guys are just getting like 20 degrees Celsius fluctuations. That's a, that's a lot. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, the weather doesn't fluctuate that much here unless it's been raining. Uh, then it can go from like 65 to 95, you know, sort of overnight and throughout the day. But uh, shout out, shout out to all my UK people. And if you don't know, because um, you're an American and uh, haven't been exposed to it too much, apparently in the United Kingdom, they build all of their houses to trap heat. It's a problem in the like American northwest too in some parts of our northeast but those places are still staying pretty cool uh, i guess the northwest got hit by that massive heat pocket last year and a few people died and got overheated and stuff where i am we know how to build houses what we build them out of sticks <laughs> sticks and uh sticks and clapboard baby if it gets knocked down by a tornado you just build it back up put yourself a little hole in the ground to crawl into when the bed wet while the uh, bad weather passes over you got to cut holes in your roof. You made your roof, you make your roof out of wood. Always make it with a pitch so that the snow and the rain uh, all fall off of it. And you got to have a lot of ventilation, ventilation and uh, external heat repellent. You got to know how to get that radiant heat off your house, which, um, you know, not a lot of people know. Maybe uh, in a general sense, people don't know about home insulation and how important it is, but I, I won't get into it because I just had the most dad moment of my life where I said, people don't understand home insulation and how important it is. <laughs> but anyway, if you're out there in the UK, uh, I don't know, man, spray yourself. I don't know. Do you guys have a garden hose? What do you, what would you call it? A yard hose? Uh, go get your yard hose and spray yourself down. Uh, drink a lot of water. Uh, put a little sugar and salt in it if you are going to be working outside for a long time. Call that e-water, and uh, that'll just uh, put your uh, electrolytes back in your bloodstream. If you keep drinking water all day and sweating, and you don't eat or anything, you're going to die, just so you know. Um, but with on to that, just what's going on with the podcast these days? Um, not too much. Getting ready to start doing conventions. I've signed up for a bunch of them. Not many people reaching back to me. I am. Despite all of you listening, not very famous at all and not really seeming to grow. I guess just podcasts are kind of stagnant right now. I guess the increase of in work from home has just really like stalled the amount of people that want to listen to a story on the way home or from work. So, you know, I'm just kind of working on other ways to get the word out there. But um, if you're out there, please do share this like this, comment on it, just do whatever you can, little tiny things to just kind of get us out there into the net sphere and uh, increase our profile. If you're watching this, if you end up watching this on uh, YouTube and you can watch this on YouTube, you can see my face 
Um, not this particular spot, actually, but the uh, the segments, the individual segments you can see. Um, yeah, hop on there, youtube.com slash Westside Fairy Tales, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know, just search. Just search for my name, search for my podcast, stuff will come up, and uh, talk to me. And of course, if you have any disagreements, any agreements, you want to talk about this uh, episode at all, please, please, please reach out to us. Um, email westsidefairytales at gmail.com or go over to our website, westsidefairytales.com and use the site there. And without further ado, um, let's get into today's subjects. Three weeks ago, I finally got to go to a movie theater to see a horror movie again for the first time since I think it part two came out. There might've been one in the middle there, but I don't think so. And uh, the movie was the black phone starring Ethan Hawke and uh, some other people, man, this is uh, this movie is wild. Uh, this stands out to me in another film, just like uh, it part one, actually on that same topic, uh, a horror movie where the advertising for it was God awful. Uh, hilariously bad. It was one of the worst trailers I've ever seen for a movie that I, I found out later to actually have a fairly significant amount of effort put into it, which is insane. Um, if you guys haven't seen the preview, uh, I, I don't even know if it's still up. I would have taken it down if I was them. But it also, it doesn't have a lot of it that actually is in the film anyway. And it starts off very dry i thought it was filmed on a a cell phone or a hand camera just in somebody's backyard and it was just going to be some terrible youtube movie you know that somebody had just paid for advertising for on youtube but that actually was not the case and uh, i didn't realize that until fucking ethan hawk of all people shows up and it just goes this kid's walking right and we've got uh super generic music and i'll get into the score later on but uh very uninspired, very typical Bloomhouse. At least it's like some modicum, a modicum of quality uh, score. But, you know, just generic horror movie plus music starts playing. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, it's going to it was either uh, like a Rhodes organ thrown through a pitcher or something or like a violin, you know, that. That's that stupid shit. Fucking horrible. But um, this kid's walking and he sees a black van and uh, this movie has to take place in the past. It's the generic past. I think it's supposed to be like 1970 something, 1980 something. I can't fucking remember. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes place in Stephen King time, which is a vague period of existence that spans from uh, right around when uh, racism ended or didn't quite was just getting ready to end. <laughs> and and uh, uh, just when we realized racism hadn't ever ended at all. No, uh, it, it takes place in like Stephen King time, which is like vaguely the 1950s, 60s to vaguely the 1970s, 80s. I, it's just like that, that, that period of time that my dad was alive and still a young person. And I hadn't been born yet uh, as a 34 year old man now. So it's just it's it's a back then no 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 nothing to get in the way of good storytelling or to make the writer have to think um, about 
you know, new versions of plots, just good old fashioned. Uh, we've done this a million times before. Here you go. Uh, no, no cell phones, no video cameras, no, uh, no, no yard to yard surveillance. As a matter of fact, kids stopped getting kidnapped in 1991 with the advent of the first cell phone camera. It's just a true fact. Kids can't get kidnapped anymore. Serial killers do not exist. Fucking stupid shit. So of course, you know, you go back in time. Everybody's wearing band shirts and stuff, but the uh, the 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 kids walking, and he sees a black van sitting there, and uh, a dude falls to the side of it and drops groceries. Oh, can you help me? And when he stands up, he, no, that's what happens in the movie. It changes because in the fucking advertisement, it's dumb as shit. The kid's just walking. And then Ethan Hawke pops up out of nowhere wearing like a cape or some shit. And I was like, that's not real. This is a joke. But it wasn't. It was an actual advertisement. I'm just going to have to play that in the video version of that. But the, the movie follows uh, some kid. I think his name's Finney. And uh, his sister who cusses a lot and some other stuff. And other characters are there. Ethan Hawke and Finney are all you really need to care about. They're most of the movie. There's some side characters that are moderately interesting. And this movie is just like a chocolate chip cookie. If the chips were just random other bullshit happening and the cookie was uh, typical bad Joe Hill writing. Joe Hill wrote the story that this is based on. It's from his black phone and other stories. Uh, collection from at some point in the past. I don't know. I don't care if it's black phone and other stories, then black phone is going to be the best story in that collection. And Holy shit. I, uh, I read that the, this movie follows the uh, story like pretty closely, which I'm not surprised is it's uh, typical bullshit. Anyway, there's kids getting kidnapped. The film starts off getting ready to tell other stories I will say that it starts off with at least a five minute, six minute sequence of the first kidnapping, which is this uh, Asian American kid. I can't remember his name. Uh, Good looking kid, maybe 16, 17 years old. I think I can't remember, but he plays baseball and he's a pitcher and he's tall and athletic. So it's like, oh, okay, whoever's kidnapping people is going to be able to take down a tall, athletic, popular person who generally shouldn't be alone and can fight back. I guess that's supposed to be the inference. He gets kidnapped in like two seconds, but they never show how. <laughs> he just starts walking toward the black fan, and every time it happens, the, the, the soundtrack just starts going, and it slows down. There are some mildly interesting things that they do instead of showing any action that's relevant to the plot for half of this film, which are to play these uh, stock footage videos, interspliced stock footage videos of people in the this general time period, 1970-something, back in 1970-something. And uh, those just get like interspliced and, and cut, and they make the, you know, the old 8-millimeter sprocket noise. If you've ever seen... The introduction to, I think, 8mm, it's that. But, you know, as a major device in the film. Yeah, I think later on it's explained that that's the little girl's premonitions and stuff, but I, I can't fucking remember. 
anyway, so that just never really comes up again. He ends it with, uh, he talks to the Finney, he goes, you got one hell of an arm, Finney. And it zooms up on his face. You know, you've got one hell of an arm. Okay, okay, cool. So uh, the Chekhov in me is like, all right, that was literally the last thing this kid said before he's going to probably die. Uh, so Finney at some point is going to throw a ball or something at somebody really hard. And that's probably going to be like the, the penultimate action scene at the end of the movie. Spoiler. It never fucking happens. <laughs> it comes up once the guy says it hey, We're at the right part of the movie, but the kid doesn't fucking throw anything, which is amazing. Oh my gosh. So after that, is additional bullshit. We're introduced to this uh, little Latino kid. He is uh, fucking like Ralph Macchio karate kid beating the absolute dog shit out of some bully. Uh, and you're like, all right, well, I really like this kid. Finney is boring as fuck. Finney's a sad boy. Um, this kid is his best friend, sort of, that he tutors because I think the kid is inferred to have dyslexia, which makes reading hard for him so he's he has trouble in school but he doesn't have trouble um beating the ever-living shit out of kids that are like twice his height and i can imagine just in the book it's just like it was probably played as like that kid's name was I don't know, i'm just gonna call him ralph that kid's name was ralph and he was small but he never took any shit you got to do that stephen king voice i always hear it when i read joe hill's writing too like he's just trying to do his dad's best impression Every time I saw Ralph, he was smaller than a, he was small as a snail, but he'd crawl on a leaf twice his size and tear it off the tree. But of course, when it hit the ground, it hit the ground in a pool of blood, a splash that crashed onto all the kids around them, causing them to erupt into gasps. Some bullshit like that. Anyway, that kid is there, but he scares off some bullies, and then he fucking gets kidnapped uh, and disappears. That makes everybody suspicious of Finney slash his sister, which makes no fucking sense. Nobody has any idea. This is ostensibly like a small town. I don't know. The movie's extremely vague on all the details, which is the only way that this film can keep going. Because this kid is a clearly impoverished Latino and a violent fighting kid that he gets abducted in the back alley of a, like a Kroger, like a grocery store shipping dock, which he's walking through for no ostensible reason. It makes no sense. And our Ethan Hawke kidnapper guy, I can't remember what the fuck they call him. The grabber, the grabber, fucking lame. Uh, the grabber is just in this fucking dock and stuff. So I'm like, all right, hey, maybe they're just like, uh, and they do the thing. <laughs> The screen starts going long, and you're like, all right, this kid's kidnapped, this kid's fucking dead, whatever. Shit happens. Maybe Ethan Hawke's character is magic and can, like, sense when a kid is going to get, you know, be vulnerable to kidnapping. No. It's just, it's just not, this is not the fucking case. It's just never brought up how he picks kids or like where he's even at. So like, I mean, and this kid is in, it's a gigantic parking lot, like literally the full size parking lot behind a grocery store, which you've ever worked at one. 
There's like seven shipping bays to his right, which is enough room. Yeah, and there's enough room for semi trucks to come in and pull through at all times of the day. Also, the kid is going there directly after school. That shipping bay should be full of people preparing for afternoon restock. Like if you've worked at a grocery store on a school day at 2 or 3 p.m., that fucking shipping bay is going to be a super highway, especially if it's a small town and that's the only grocery store. The fuck everybody is going to be making deliveries into there at that time. All the fresh food come fresh food comes in in the a.m. And your dry shit comes from the, the in, in the middle of the, the afternoon before the parking lot gets full of all the people shopping after they on their way home from work. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I know Joe Hill wrote it and he was raised by the half billionaire king of literature. So the possibility of him ever having been in behind a Kroger is slim to none. I get it. He's rich. He doesn't know better, but ye gods, how in the fuck? There's not even any things there. And they say that he was going to the grocery store. So he's like going to cut through. Maybe it was, maybe it was the next door over. Maybe it was an abandoned, an abandoned Sears in 1985, 1976. It was a Sears parking lot with nobody in it in 1976. Oh my God. But it's completely empty, and uh, for some reason, the grabber is parked back there like it's a child superhighway. Makes no sense, but it just happens. And I know it's like a three-second scene, but like it really captures just how fucking bullshit this whole movie is. As an aside, really quickly, I will say I enjoyed a lot of the performances. There was a lot of heart to the film. Bloomhouse probably just took, they literally just took a piece of shit and sprayed gold on it until you couldn't flick through the paint. Shout out to them. The sound design, pretty okay, pretty good. The editing, solid. Shot composition, I mean, what what do you what what do you really think is gonna they're gonna get? So uh, this is the first like half hour of the movie too. Are these other abductions and stuff? And then of course I, I don't know. There's all kinds of shit going on at Finney's home. If it seems like I'm all over the place, it's because this movie is all over the place as well. Tonally, plot-wise, it's just sloppy. It's just sloppily written from start to finish. The film is long. Um, I think it's like an hour 40, and it could definitely have been cut down. It might even be pushing two hours. It does not have that much content in it. There's a lot of conversations that are pointless between people. There's a lot of talking, a lot of speculation and uh, I'll just get into it. But it functionally speaking, the, the movie's pacing is, is not great. Um, and it really takes about half an hour to get into the movie, which is Finney in the basement. So he gets captured. Um, <laughs> fucking Ethan Hawke shows up drops his groceries and like um, suffocates him with spray paint in a face mask, which I think you could have just fucking strangled the kid. I, I don't, I think you'd be dead. I don't know. I've never done spray paint um, as a drug. I know it wrecks you, but uh, from what I remember being a crime and courts reporter, we had this one guy in Charleston, West Virginia, who was a spray paint addict. And uh, he, was a recurring offender and was an incredibly 
um, not violent necessarily, but like a destructive force when he was on um, spray paint. It was not very sedating to him. It turned him into an insane person uh, who would just mumble fuck around and like batter things, not necessarily people, just shit. Like usually he would get arrested for kicking a mailbox to pieces or going inside of a public building and then just disassembling like a bookshelf with his bare hands and his forehead. Insane shit like that. So it's definitely not the drug I would think, but I'm pretty sure it's fucking spray paint. Um, I don't know what else it could be that wouldn't just kill the kid. I mean, I guess if it's something like air duster, which I don't know if they had that in the 1970s, that that's, that's a mild sedative, but it only lasts for like, 60 minutes or so and it whatever it is it's an aerosol can with a spray cap on top and it's never really explained again and it should be um the guy has balloons and balloons have helium in them i don't think it's helium um maybe it is i think that would kill the kid and helium doesn't come in an aerosol can i'm not sure and that that just drives me nuts because i want to know like that's one of the most important things about a serial killer just if you're out there in the world and I know I got a lot of true, true crime geeks. The way that somebody absconds with people is one of the most important aspects of their character as a, as a serial killer. And it's one of the most important things in proving that a person was a serial killer in court is the method of abduction. You're literally describing the crime at hand. Like, I know you want to get to the juicy parts, um, you know, but like also with the pacing in this, maybe you don't but just kind of describe it. It needs to be a better overall thing. Having balloons that had some sort of like ether in them or, or something that he could pop in people's faces. They did that in Batman and it was cool. I think, uh, who did that? Well, I mean, obviously you've got the Joker, obviously the Joker's done that shit, but I think that was one of the mad hatters deals. If you guys remember the mad hatter, from Batman the Animated Series. I think the Mad Hatter did balloons. We're going to have a party. Anyway, I digress. So he abducts this kid. He takes him to this reinforced concrete basement with a black phone on the wall. Hey, it's the black phone. The basement's layout makes no sense. Um, it is a confusing, idiotic mess of a cell that makes no sense. It is so nonsensical that they have to have a diegetic conversation in the story about how the kid's like, I'm going to scream. And the guy's like, you can scream all you want. Nobody can hear you. Uh, half the time, Ethan Hawke is doing like a Michael Jackson impression, which I don't know if is intentional or just like a Freudian slip type deal, but it is pretty noticeable <laughs> when he's got his happy, his happy mask on. So, there's also this mask that Ethan Hawke's character wears, which you're first really introduced to in this scene. It is a four-piece mask, three-piece. It's got two pieces that are on the top and bottom each time, or sometimes. There's like an over-the-eyes piece and a mouthpiece, and there's two mouthpieces, one that smiles and one that frowns, and he switches them out depending on his mood. Okay, cool. You know, I've seen that before. I am familiar with, yet again, another Batman reference, the villain Two-Face, and I think, uh, I think there's other villains that did that too, and they switch out their happy and sad. So you got a Janus thing going on. We can just call it Janus, all right? It's a trope that's uh, literally as old as ancient Greece. 
So we've, we've got this Janus mask type thing going on and man, he could have had something and it's never explained at all. Not even like to the side, like where he like talks about something or there's any evidence in the basement. It's also extremely suggested very strongly that he, the first kid he killed was probably uh, the, the East Asian kid from the first scene because nobody else. Okay. So anyway, the black phone's on the wall. He tells him he's in the basement. Uh, The kid starts getting calls on the black phone because I don't know. He's got the shining, whatever the fuck it's Joe Hill's version of the shining. He's got the shine to him so he can hear the black phone call. And then when he answers it, it's, the dead kids and they always forget who they are, but then they are like, Oh, this is what happened to me while I was in the basement and blah, 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 blah. He talks to like four or five of them. doesn't matter. The phone sometimes swells and shrinks like it's breathing on the wall. That's never gone into. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with the phone. Uh, Ethan Hawk says he heard the phone ring when he was a kid, but when he answered it, no one was there. And the kid said that maybe he did hear somebody, but also uh, that's never gone into. There's a lot of wasted time to make that phone more interesting, and it never is. It just never is used. The basement's layout is confusing. There's a bed. The bed looks directly at the stairs. The stairs go up to a normal house upstairs where uh, the grabber lives. To the right of the stairs, as you're looking at them, is a bizarre hallway construction. This hallway goes to the right and it's very skinny and uh, tiled. And then it cuts to the right after that. And there is a solitary toilet and five or six stacks of uh, old carpet. I guess you can infer that the old carpets are carpets that that guy collects so that he can wrap the bodies up in them. Eventually and dispose of them, I don't know, but there's a collection of carpets. We find out later also that there is a wall, the wall to the left of this hallway, along the left of this hallway, somehow connects to an additional basement space that has a meat fridge in it, uh, a full wall freezer, like you would see in a garage, but the house is a single-story ranch home without a garage, and I think on-street parking, and no other obvious way to get down into the basement. So this basement has an additional room in it that I never saw the door to. And then I feel like if the kid did see the door to, he would try to possibly go into it. Fucking it's, it's, it's this film. So that's the basement that this kid spends almost the entirety of this film in. Um, shit happens. His sister is the other main character. That's a good person in this. Uh, her dad is a drunk piece of shit who beats the fuck out of them, uh, beats the girl pretty mercilessly in one scene. And, um, they, we never really resolve that point. Uh, I like that, that dad never really faces up to his alcoholism and, and child beating. So, Another spoiler, our kid and his daughter survive, and so does that dad. So, you know, it might just be like, well, you know, you got kidnapped at one time, but I'm still going to beat the shit out of you because I've never really addressed the underlying issues. <laughs> Dumb. It was, it's a really intense scene, too. Like, the entire movie theater is like, oh, my God. And it's like, well acted. The little girl screaming the whole time has no bearing almost whatsoever on the plot. 
It is as functional to the plot as if he would have just been like, I don't believe that you have magic powers, little girl, because she's also got the fucking Shining. Uh, Joe Hill steals everything else from his dad, so I feel like you can just call it the Shining. It doesn't matter. So the little girl's also got the Shining, and uh, she uses the Shine in her dreams sometimes to, like, see stuff, and she has premonitions, and, of course, obviously she finds the grabber in her dreams. So she, that's how the the movie ends. It, the, it doesn't matter. A lot of other shit happens. She goes around and makes mistakes and blah, 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 blah. blah and they get over there. It, it, her entire scenes are, are kind of great. The little girl as an actress is great. I feel like off to the side, maybe, or something, it might've even been in the original. Um, they wrote her as being like a foul mouthed, kind of a smart aleck person and uh she's fun she's great to see on screen i wish she would have had more stuff to do Uh, a lot of her is just not being believed and like kind of like in transit but i feel like if so she does a mild investigation right during this entire thing and this is how i was this is one of my rewrites to it um the kid just has finney just has these dead people call him randomly all the time. They just randomly start calling him for no necessary reason. Sometimes they call right before he makes a mistake or something, but usually it's like the scene starts or just right after the scene's initial bit of action, then the phone rings and they whatever. The girl the whole time is kind of just bouncing around trying to be like, I don't know if I should tell people about my dreams. What I think would have been better, much better, is if she would have gone around the neighborhood and like given these dead kids more screen time basically. And more, uh, not, not, not just for like, you know, like, Hey, I want you to be in the movie, like just some fucking narrative time to explore like who they are and why they were there. Because only two of them are people that Finney knew to some degree. And the other three, I think three or two or three, um, are all strangers to him. There's the, the there's one kid that makes no sense how he gets in that basement. And that's never explained at all, but it would have been better if the girl was going around and like following her senses and discovering clues to find the guy instead of ultimately she just do sexes and finds the dude's house clues at the places where they were like dropped and stuff. She's shown she's shown to be very, you know, investigative and like she's smart and she's insightful So, like, why not have her be like, well, where did they disappear and what was there? And then she goes and she's like, but did anybody see this black balloon? And if she touches the balloon, then we can do, uh, what what is that? The dead zone. We can do the dead zone. And she touches stuff. Maybe maybe he just didn't want to do the dead zone because dad did it first. But we just do the dead zone. She touches shit that they touched before they died kind of deal. And she gets to, like, see a little glimpse, a little bit more each time. Like, oh, he wears a mask. Oh, he carries the balloons. Oh, he has a reason for following these people. He drives this van. He uses this thing to knock them out. And if you put all of those things together, you can say, okay, well, he's a person with a balloon in vans could be anything. And we go, like, arrest, like, a party clown. And kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about and do a few more things. Maybe the fucking aerosol is a carpet cleaner. And this guy has a van because he does carpet cleaning and his stupid abracadabra thing is actually like abracadabra carpet cleaning instead of magic. And he just puts a magnet on the side of it that says like magic and tricks that could have been completely different. 
This dude's van is also the most conspicuous van I've ever seen. It looks spray painted black. It's matte black with a chunky paint job and gigantic white letters on the side of it. It's the most, sus- most suspicious van I've ever seen. I think it's got blacked out windows too, which uh, 1976 wasn't that much different. Everybody was still suspicious of stuff. You know, like people would be like, what in the absolute fuck is that black van with abracadabra written on the side of it? Uh, or Alakazam, whatever the hell it has parked there for, right? People would just notice this is a neighborhood, a small town where people do not look out their windows at all. And, you know, like in if you compare this to a comparative story where there's something picking off children in a town, it written by another person I haven't brought up yet in this story. um, When the kids get picked off, it's because they fall into the sewer. They go underground. So there's no evidence that they were there except for whatever was on them that they might have dropped before they got sucked into the sewer by a fucking murderous demon clown thing. Not uh, a, a big ass van parked for who knows how long minutes, hours, several days in a row waiting for a kid to walk behind a fucking Kroger <laughs> so they could kidnap them. That, that would be the most conspicuous thing ever. And it would be better if it was just like it really did happen in the 1970s. Cops are incompetent and kind of dumb sometimes, and they just don't connect the dots or ask people questions. They're just like, well, uh, yeah, it was probably, I don't know, Puerto Ricans or something. Definitely not that fella in the black van. You know, if you would have put the incompetence factor in there and let the little girl shine. God, it would have been so much more interesting. A lot happens. It's constant. This movie's fucking long, but nothing happens in most of it. The kid goes through like a hero's journey of totem collection, basically a very common trope, very common Stephen King thing. He puts stuff together. He, uh, each kid gives him a clue on how to beat the bad guy at the end. Painfully obvious. Um, some of them seem like red herrings at first. And then when you put them all together at the end, it actually makes sense. Now, if the girl was unlocking these for him by her connection to her brother and also putting this stuff together, it would have felt way more earned too, by the way. Uh, but the things he does specifically are he uses a length of cord. I can't remember what the hell it was from. Um, to rip down the giant metal grating over the window. So there's a, there's a fucking old plate glass window, the kind with the little bottom latch. They're super common where I grew up in Cincinnati. We have basement windows. Um, they don't stop any fucking sound. So I don't know what the hell Ethan Ox character is talking about, but it's got one of those within behind that is like a one inch thick cast iron grating. It's huge. The kid rips it out of the window and it falls to the ground, and I guess because he can't hear him upstairs, because no one can hear him, because he's screaming. Blah, 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 blah. Um, the, the, the thing crashes to the ground, and, and the kid gets hit by it, but now he's got that grate. Uh, another kid tells him that he tried to dig out through the floor. Uh, I think I talked about this in a different movie about how dumb that is. If, you're, there's, if there's a wall, just turn on through the damn wall. But he dug a hole in the floor through the tiles, and the guy filled it back in. So the kid digs a hole out of the floor and flushes uh, dirt down a first or a basement toilet. Um, that won't work. That toilet will clog in about 15 or 20 flushes. This kid puts, uh, if I had to guess, just on site, he puts three by three by three by three. So about nine cubic feet of dirt 
down a 1970s, 1980s era four gallon flush toilet. So that's not going to happen. That that toilet's probably on a fucking three inch stack <laughs> put into a basement in the 1950s because that guy said the basement was there when he was a kid. So that's a that basement's at least from the 1950s, if not the 1930s or 40s. So that's an ancient toilet put in uh, in concrete going in off the house really low to the ground. Um, I mean, I guess you could do it, but this kid is taking handful after handful and flushing it. Um, the dude should notice that his, he, the kid's in there for, I think a couple weeks. He should notice that his water bill is skyrocketing <laughs> house has no pressure. I think actually, if you were flushing a four gallon toilet that much constantly over and over and over again, and you'd manage to not clog it, which means you have to send a shitload, a shitload of water through it. Because all that, that dirt just goes blup right here. Cause it's dirt. It's not even human waste. It's, it's hard mineral packed silicate filled uh, detritus it's rocks and sand and clay that's what dirt is made out of waste is a much much more pliant material and it floats more importantly dirt does not float so just sit there and just build up and so each subsequent flush will be less powerful and your line will build up now i know that joe hill was not raised a very wealthy kid uh so you know uh, maybe he had a plumber in his family who told him that that would work you know and he's just a typical blue collar guy he probably knows more about this than me <laughs> oh my god yeah you know, i know i know joe hill wasn't uh I know Joe Hill was, you know, he's a rich kid. He doesn't know better. He doesn't know better. Why would he know how toilets work? That's what fucking filthy people do. Filthy people fix toilets. I just talk about, you just, he just flushed the the dirt down the toilet. It's a genius idea. Just kids at home, flush dirt down your toilets. It'll work super well. The basement toilet too. Oh my God. Oh, so... The, the kid digs a gigantic fucking hole there. And because he has carpets in that basement, usually the carpets are like the biggest thing that helps this kid get out of this basement because he sends a string up through one to unlock or to, to catch around the window to pull it down. He covers up this giant hole that he's dug. And for some fucking reason, he's manages to dig a nine cubic foot hole of dirt with like a broken chunk of tile, I think is a shovel and his bare hands. His nails aren't filthy along with the rest of his clothes, just covered in dirt. Why does the guy not notice that this kid has clearly been digging in dirt? He is not eating anything but scrambled eggs once every two days, somehow has enough calories to continuously dig this fucking gigantic hole. Um, and, and Ethan Hawke's character just never goes over there and looks. If he go, he stands at the bottom of the stairs and I swear to God turns around in that direction to look back upstairs and he just never notices like, huh? Well, after all of this trauma, that kid's just decorating the hallway. <laughs> like, what are you fucking insane? And then after that, it gets in more crazy. One of the last guys and this dude. Okay. So they all talk to him for, through the phone. Fine. This dude is the most biggest of all of the possible kids. And it is never fucking explained for a second how he got into that basement. He is 
an adult almost. He's like an 18, 19-year-old young man, maybe 17 at best. But he's full-grown, full-grown, motley crew hair, uh, switchblade, violent. He is introduced playing games in a uh, convenience store on an arcade machine, and some kid bumps into him, and they all talk shit like they're going to fight. And I think that kid pulls a knife on him or he pulls a knife on that kid. Either way, that kid ends up on the ground with this dude carving numbers into his arm. Now, I know that this is partially a memory, but it has to be based on something. You know, this is the girl sees it in her stupid fucking shining dreams. And uh, that is the address of the house, obviously. So this kid gets arrested by the police, put into a police car. This is his memory of his life and then driven away in a police car. This is his last memory. It is never said how this turbo asshole, aggro fucking young man who cuts people would just be like, yeah, I'm a fuck with black van guy. How is he not in jail if he cut a dude? What in the fuck happened to get this guy into the fucking murder basement and then not fucking get out or fight his way out or anything? It's, it makes no sense at all. Still fun. I'll give it to you. If you're watching right now and you're like, that's not the point. It isn't. I get it. It was still fun. It's a bloom house. I am at a war with the writing in this because it is unforgivably stupid and it never pays off and nothing's ever explained. It always seems like it's going to be, but then just the movie ends and you're like, Oh, well fuck me. Right. This fucking, this dude's trick that he teaches Finney is he dug through the wall instead of the hole right beneath the wall and got as far as a uh, refrigerator. There's a refrigerator back against that, which I described earlier. So there's another chunk, a compartment of this house that this dude can get to. So for some reason, this house has two doors to two basements upstairs. And I cannot express this enough. And I know I know Joe probably didn't go up around 900 square foot single family ranch homes. They're probably strange to him. You know, you, uh, you could probably fit anything in a house when it's like three stories. So this single story ranch home somehow has two fucking basements. And I haven't gotten to the most insane part of the house yet. I have not. Two entrances. It's got two basement chunks in it with concrete, concrete walls, concrete divider walls between them. Uh, so this dude is just, Pouring concrete while also stealing kids. And I mean, hauling seriously, seriously large amounts of concrete into this goddamn basement. And he's managed to wall off an entire chunk of it in separate, separated from the rest of it. And it's wired with electricity and everything. So this dude is an extreme handyman. Also, in addition to everything else, this other area has a full sized stand-up commercial-grade freezer with uh, frozen meat bits in it, right? Um, and they don't even do the cool thing where the frozen meat might be like the kids. It's just like obviously food. I'm going to complain endlessly about this goddamn movie. The fridge is locked from the outside, which makes no sense at all. I Or no, sorry, 
No, the fridge is shut from the other side, but I guess it's like one of those old 1970s fridges that you can't open from the interior, which was a problem back in the day. So that's fair, I guess. I don't care. But how the hell you get down there makes no sense to me. And it is very clearly, by the way, a a very subterranean basement. You can see through the window that he is at least 10, 12 feet underground. I don't know exactly how tall Finney is, but it's a him and a half to reach the top of the window. Basically, that's why you can't just climb out. You got to jump up to it and then get out uh, and the the latch on the top. I, I digress. The problem that arises here is that he needs to get into it and open it up and he gets a big, big piece of sheet metal off the back. And I'm like, okay, so the, the, the herring is that he could get out through there. What he's really going to do is use this big ass piece of sheet metal to like, I don't know, fuck this guy up or something. Sheet metal can really wreck somebody, but no. All right. Well, we'll get to what he does in a second. Right now I've got to describe somehow the best and worst character in this. The character is great. Um, I, I can't remember what the hell his name is. So we're just going to call him Steve. Steve is talking to the police earlier in the film about midway. Uh, they go to him because he calls the police and is like, Hey, I have been putting together this board of all of the kids and where they get arrested or where they've been probably grabbed. And I've noticed that if you draw a circle around it, this area right here is kind of in the middle of it. And um, he's got drugs and stuff, even though it's a pretty good idea. And the, the cops are like, you know, hey, are you are you out of, from out of town? Like, he's like, yeah, I'm from out of town. I'm visiting my brother, blah, 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 blah. It is actually good leads. It, the thing is supposed to be, I guess, a nod to just how bad cops are at their jobs in a general sense. They have the evidence put out right before them. But because a lay person did it, not them, they're buttered about it. It's, it's frighteningly typical even to this day. This guy is the grabber's fucking brother and the house that the cops were in is the grabber's house. That's the reveal. Let's get into what the grabber does to the kids. The grabber's thing is that he's got these stupid fucking masks and he gets happy and sad. And so he just waits for the kids to be bad so that he can violently punish them and then murder them. There is some graphic not graphic, uh, implied gruesome, potentially sexual violence involved in this. Um, but mostly he's just going to whip kids with the belt. And that's what the kids say. All of the kids who have a chance to describe their death only ever say like, Oh, you're going to hate what happens. You're going to hate what happens. It's the worst thing ever. It's the worst thing ever, which I mean, Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could be getting killed and it could be anything. And it's not one of those cases where it's like sometimes the best horror is left to your imagination. No, shut up. Fuck you. I paid to watch a movie about a goddamn serial killer who wears black masks and keeps kids in a phone or a basement with a pointless fucking phone. And it's Ethan Hawke. I want to know what the fuck he does to them. Why not? That's why I watch serial killer shit. I know everything about what John Wayne Gacy did. Everything. The fuck? Tell her. The worst thing that could ever happen. The worst thing. Imply something. Show something. I think it is implied to be like a table that he straps you down to or something. And like one of the kids, all the kids have like marks from where they were killed, but they also are not like severe wounds. Uh, they, they're nasty, but they're not like fatal. I, I won't get into it too much. Um, and they're all fully clothed and a lot of the wounds are through their clothing. So I don't know what's implied. But or, or or what actually could have even possibly been done to them. But uh, the implication work is still insufficient, ultimately. Like, I, it's just like, what are you getting at? Like, I don't understand. There's nothing about the grabber as a character that even implies what he might do with somebody. The best version of this implied without ever being shown is in seven. Hands down, the best. The lust scene shows three things. The first is the discovery of the body and they never show the body. The guys are just like, I can't believe I just saw that. That's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Fair. All right. We're at the best that black phone gets to. The next thing you see is the guy that was forced to kill the lust person who is just broken down completely and it's just like he made me he made me fuck her he made me use it he made me fuck her and it's the most it's you feel bad for this guy and you're like what in the fuck this dude is fucked up and then for the briefest second they say you made this piece here and he's like yeah and they say like is this it and they show what he was wearing when it happened and it is a nightmare strap on made of stainless steel barbs and leather. And it's like fucking a foot and a half long and it's on and done. The implications are full. I didn't need to see anything in motion. It haunts me to this day. And the effect of it is far superior than if I would have just seen this person being ripped apart by it. That is fucking good shit. That is fucking Perfect. David Fincher, the man, the fucking man. All right, Mr. Green Tent, a king. They just don't ever do anything like this. The closest you get in Black Phone is one of the kids warns him not to go upstairs because if you go upstairs and the door's unlocked, that's when uh, you're bad boy and he starts to punish you and uh, it, it gets creepy. And there is a lot that I don't like about the... Uh, 
way that this dude is with the kids. Now, psycho or or, or sadist, sexual sadism um, and violent murder is not like uncommon between uh, or, or between homosexual men or uh, committed by a homosexual man against younger people. I mean, it's a, it's a, it happens. Generally, it's not the most common way for a serial killer to operate. Most serial killers tend to be um, middle-aged white men or middle-aged majority population men in wherever they live. Um, and uh, a vi- committing violence against um, at-risk women or at-risk youth type people. These are not at-risk people. Well, maybe they are to a degree. But um, still, like, there's something about the way that Ethan Hawke does it where the perversion that the mask guy is kind of like that's causing him to do this. There's a little bit of an implication that he's got this like sissy side to him and this like mask side to him. That's kind of I don't know. It it seems a little a little uh, Buffalo Bill to me. He puts on that Michael Jordan or Michael Michael Jordan. He puts on that Michael Jackson voice. That's kind of like uh, you know I just I would never hurt you. I would never hurt you. And then he gets uh, he gets upset. He's like I don't know why you lied to me. And it's trying to this like this Janusian fucking like uh, like uh, you know double side of the coin type deal, but it's not really done very well. And it does seem a little, I don't know. I would have rather you just said like he just hates that he feels gay and is murdering people than like whatever the hell sort of like PG thirteen version of this villain is. He's just weird. So when this guy sits at the top of the stairs waiting for the kids to break the rule of leaving. Um, he's got his frowny mask on and he sits there shirtless. Shout out to Ethan Hawke, by the way. He is fucking a thick boy in this film. He is like, his pecs are fucking huge. And he's just a, a sweaty hog man up there in his fucking like leather pants with a big ass belt laid across his lap. Sitting in just the kitchen of this house, staring at the thing. And one of the major plot points of this is the kid almost gets out at one point. And, uh, he can't because even though he gets past this dude, um, cause the guy falls asleep for hours, he waits for hours until the guy falls asleep. And like, he kind of like waits and like tries to like feel it out. Then he goes upstairs and he unlocks this padlock with this badly. So one of the kids that gets kidnapped, um, it's the paper boy and the paper boy gets kidnapped and murdered obviously. And his thing is like the guy I almost got out, but he took my bike lock from me. And locked the front door with it. I'm like, what? So we, this, the kid, Finney, runs out of the house, gets past the dude while he's sleeping, and runs out of the house, gets to the front door, and the front door is locked with a padlock. There's a little latch clicked inside. Now, at this point, we don't yet know that the uh, killer is the Steven or Eddie's brother, whatever the hell I call that guy. So <laughs> the kid runs down the street yelling the guy tears ass out of his house in a black van in like the middle of the night mid-morning and tackles the kid and puts a knife to his throat he's like i'll slit your throat if you scream at all like you'll just fucking die out here 
which is okay. But nobody, like not even a single light turns on, like nothing, nothing at all. Like fair enough. But Jesus Christ. I mean, I guess the neighborhood's empty. You could have said something about the bad neighbors. It's just strange. But here's the most important part of that. The most important. The, the most critical. The fucking brother lives there. He lives there. He's staying in town for a while. That's why he is at the house. Why does he not notice how weird there is that there's a fucking basement in there? Maybe two basements? Uh, how has he never noticed his brother being the weirdest fucking guy of all time? When is his brother sure that he can go in and out of this house that has a garage. The garage is on the top floor. I know that the garage is on the top floor because it's where he parks the fucking van. He drives the van out of the garage. The van is super creepy. And his brother has always filling up balloons and has these masks around. He just doesn't notice any of it. And, you know, I guess there are people that haven't noticed anything. But in the case of the brother, it's not like he's ignoring the obvious signs. He's looking for the killer. He's about it. He's on cocaine, which makes you a paranoid fucking mess. If I was yacked up in 1976 and I thought there was a serial, serial killer in my neighborhood and I drew a fucking map out and circled it in the house I was living in with my brother who gets in a black van and disappears all the time. And sometimes he's walking around. He's got these fucking masks I've noticed. And he's got a basement I'm not allowed, not allowed to go into. And sometimes he talks to me like fucking Michael Jackson in this little creepy whisper voice. I would be a degree of suspicious a little bit before what inevitably happens. And he's just like, gets his fucking head chopped in half by the brother. It just happens. The kid yells for help or he goes down there and it is what it is. He gets killed. It's so stupid. It's dumb. This is near the end of near the end of the film. Um, all of this shit takes forever to get to, by the way, more to the point, the cops went to a house where a guy was saying, I think I know who the serial killer is. I am yacked up on drugs on this map right here where the circle is. You may notice that is the neighborhood you're in. All right. I know you're the worst cops ever. Ignore most importantly, however, the fact that when you come into my house, there's a fucking latch, a fucking hook and clasp latch with a goddamn bike lock on it that locks from the fucking inside. <laughs> what the fuck what in the fuck dude does he leave it off the door when his brother is like there just just completely uninstall it i mean that should be like a sign like if fincher made this film it would be a fucking shit show it would be the wildest thing you'd ever seen in your life like that would be a detail you have to notice it you have to notice it dumb as shit we get to the escape the kid is getting challenged and then uh, the guy comes down and chops the dude's head in half and when he walks in the door the brother the kid is already set up for the final showdown his little friend teaches him how to throw a punch by filling the phone the the plastic phone with dirt to make it heavier which by the way implies that it is clay and sand heavy clay and sand dirt 
So it's going to actually pack in enough to like make the phone weigh, I don't know, a pound or two. I wouldn't hit them with the phone. I mean, I guess maybe if it's a really old metal casing phone, but I think it's plastic. I'm pretty sure all the hang up noises are plastic on plastic. So it's a plastic phone. It unscrews. He takes some of the wiring out, plugs it in, rips it, cuts it in half off the wall and hides it. So he's going to hit this dude with it. Whatever. The way that, the best way to do that, by the way, is to not hit the person with the phone because that is going to fuck your leverage. Just here, just so you know. Just so you know if you ever need to get out there and hurt somebody um, with a phone because you've been locked in a basement and you're trying to escape. Uh, that phone, I would have to see some serious proof that that phone is going to give you enough momentum and fulcrum and withstand the impact hard enough to, to make it a really good sap. I guess it could if it, if it's really good, but I've touched so many phones. If you made the strongest payphone, payphone receivers are some of the strongest ones in the business, right? Uh, from back in the 90s. If I still rip that off and, and packed it with maybe even like a full five pound weight at it, I would still not really trust that to, to withstand a hit and be held in your hand in a way where you could really get that brick off. I mean, I won't test it on myself, but the better way to do that is to definitely fill up both ends and then hold the receiver in your hand and then let that extra weight carry into your knuckles. Like you're holding a, uh, like you're holding like a roll of, of quarters, which I think is what you're supposed to do. But in the thing, he holds it so that like the, uh, the, the little earpiece and the mouth receiver are like forward. And he kind of like, does like a clubbing thing. I, I don't know. Anyway, they practice like that. It's a little karate kid sequence, which again, Ralph Macchio, that little kid is just doing like the karate kid step, step, punch, step back, step back, punch. I don't understand the feint that he's teaching him. I mean, I, I guess it's a feint. His first boxing class. He steps forward, steps back, steps forward, punch, ha, 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 punch, which. Okay. Uh, I don't. All right. I mean, you're punching. Finney is like fucking five, two. And I think Ethan Hawk is like six foot something or other. He's got a head and a half on him. So that's a reach first off. So I don't know if I would just as another thing. I don't know if I would ever bother with a feint if I'm going to try to get a surprise attack on an adult, especially if I'm not like really good at putting another feint in there. I, don't plan to dodge first if you're in a fight. Um, because that is going to get you thinking that you're going to like get swung at first. I, I don't know. Just hit him as hard as you can. <laughs> if you're going to hit somebody that doesn't know you're going to hit somebody, don't let them know. Just don't even tell them about it. Don't faint. Don't put your hands up. Literally, you're in a great position if you guys don't know anything about boxing and you're throwing one weighted haymaker, get in there and do the whole goddamn uh, what's his name and just twist your entire upper torso into your pec and into your, uh, your serratus muscles and snap your entire hips left and just try to get that whole weight of your hand. You don't even have to try to make it a really good hit. Don't even worry about two knuckles. You've probably only got one of these in you. Dempsey, it's a Dempsey roll. Dempsey roll that guy as hard as you can in his chin. Don't punch him in the head. Hit his chin or his cheek. Aim for the lowest 
closest part of him, which is the best that you can do. And if you get him with that, a Dempsey roll, I don't care if you weigh a buck 30 and it's you're hitting me 275. You Dempsey roll me with a, a handful of heavy phone, you know, weighted and, and catch me in my chin. I'm taking a nap. It doesn't matter who you are. It, I could hit freaking the heavyweight champion of the world, whoever it is right now. If they don't see it coming, they would agree with me. As hard as I can, full Dempsey roll haymaker, blop, your entire body weight into it off of a weighted punch, a cheat glove, it's a win. But if I go, huh, huh, and then I try like an overhand right, like, are you out of your mind? Kid, you weigh 145 pounds, you weigh a buck 80, and this dude has got 40, 50 pounds on you, and you've never hit somebody with an overhand right before? My man, you're, that's a hard game to play. It's a good punch. It's a great punch. It's not the punch you're looking for, my man. It's just overhand right him. I learned everything I know about boxing from Mike Tyson's punch out. This is what that technique said. So the guy gets chopped in the head and he's like, well, now I'm going to kill you, kid. So the, the grabber chases him. He's got an axe and the kid runs and jumps over a carpet that the grabber never saw. He falls in there. Okay, that's the hole. He steps, his ankle lands on the grating and that snaps his ankle and fucks him up, right? Which is cool. I guess it's a deadfall trap. It probably would work. It could work if it's set up the right way. Um, I don't know. I, I, I took a lot of, I took a lot of classes on traps when I was in the Marines. That is not one of the ones that um, I remember. Um, honestly, You'd be, he would have been better off keeping that grating behind the wall if you thought that dude was going to fall in there. You're probably going to fucking break your leg falling into a three foot hole without noticing, or at least stun yourself pretty significantly. I've fallen in holes in the dark on patrol in Iraq before. It's not fun. I never broke my leg though. I know people that did. I know people that broke ankles and stuff. So 50 50. Um, but, you know, just a few, you know, little ankle rollers. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, that's maybe that's an actual trap. But I think what have also worked is just jump over that. Know that that guy's going to fall into it or hope he does. And then once he falls in, just take that heavy ass 80 pound grate and literally just start beating his ass to death with it. Fuck a whole Dempsey roll. And nobody's skull holds up to 20, 30 pounds of stainless steel grating just smashing down into it again and again you can't even block that i could get my hand in front of like a you know a really good punch I could, I could, if i get my arm in front of you know some of the strongest punches in the world like it might break it it would definitely hurt like it might disable my arm but you know i could at least stop it if you start hitting somebody in the head with 30 pounds of steel that's done like it's going through your arm this dude's not using a lot of effort you don't have to aim. It's like a foot and a half wide by two feet. You got a lot of reach too. You can't even get your wrist. He's got to reach past the whole grating. And all the whole time you just pink, pink, pink. That's the best thing about weapons. The longer they are, the more effective they are. I digress. So this kid, he gets him in there and then he punches him in the face with this thing a few times. And, uh, well, he gets grabbed. He pulls the dude's mask off. Of course, like everybody that's ever worn a mask, or is protective of their face in any kind of media ever since the history of mankind. 
The guy uh, freaks out. He completely loses his mind and uh, pisses his pants and screams. And then the kid starts punching him in the face. And then the kid does, man, he knocks the guy out a little bit. And then the kid does the dumbest thing I think he could do, which is like jump over the top of him sort of, and then uh, strangle him with the cord of the phone. Now, effective but dangerous just as just as a general thing he still had that piece of sheet metal and also this dude dropped a full ass wood axe up three and a half foot five pound head splitting ass wood chopping axe it is functionally able to cut a human head in half we have witnessed this way better way to go just dude three and a half feet away Perfect. Instead, he gets in the danger zone, wraps this dude up with a little garrote and does his little, I'm going to choke him to death. Whatever. I wouldn't do that with a thin corded thing like that. I mean, it'll work, but uh, I think it's implied that he's air choking him, which is just doesn't happen. And then they do the, the, he does the Hollywood and uh, snaps the dude's neck or or whatever the fuck. I I don't know. The, 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 The disconnect between Hollywood and the function of the like cervical spine area, whichever I think that's this one, but uh, you know, the, the whole neck and throat area and like Hollywood are just in a perpetual disconnect. I always appreciate it. I, every time I see somebody and then they do like, just, it's just the solid snake. Uh, 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 oh, fucking murder thing. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. But I guess he's just trying to air choke this guy. And he does the, the East Asian kid gets to do the, um, uh, he says, you got one hell of an arm and that's the, and he breaks the dude's windpipe, neck, throat. I don't know. By the way, if he, even if he broke his windpipe, that dude still got a good two and a half minutes, like a good two and a half minutes. Like he could still get up and kill this shit out of you, kid. I don't know what the hell's going on. Um, and then the point of the hole in the wall is that the dude has a gigantic ass dog, uh, which is, he's, he's a cute, the dog is a, the dog's a sweetheart. I, I would have just been friends with the dog. I'd been like, me and that dog are cool. Um, but the kid sees the ax and then he's like, oh no, I don't have to use the ax on the dog. That's kind of like chained to the wall, but still guarding the, uh, the way out. Um, and he tosses him some of the thawed steaks from that refrigerator, which nobody has smelled thawing just, just the house. <laughs> bunch of thawing raw, raw meat in there in a hole in the wall that nobody noticed. Maybe he puts one of those carpets over it. I don't know. Um, but that's pretty much the end of the movie. Um, he goes upstairs and they find out that the house that the girl was leading the cops to is the one that's across the street where the bodies are buried. All right, whatever. Final things about this film. Um, I actually had a good time watching it. Right. And I had a better time talking shit about it afterwards. So, you know, it's always out there for you. I wouldn't say it's so bad. It's good. It's uh, so fun because of the performances and how stupid it is at times that um, it's easy to overlook all of the just absolute senseless dog shit. Um, It's like a McDonald's. It's a, it's like a McDonald's double cheeseburger, right? If you get it, and you eat it, and you don't think about it too much, especially if you're drunk or high, best shit ever. McDonald's cheeseburger. Anything written by Joe Hill. Am I impaired at the moment? Am I half blind? 
Am I just in a kind of like a happy place where, you know, I just don't really give a fuck. Fuck. Yeah. All right. Whatever. It, it's like, uh, you know, it's Stephen King late. So it, it was okay. I kind of enjoyed it, you know, while I was watching it until towards the end, the drug seriously drug in parts. And then toward the end, it was just stupid as fuck. And we were like, what are you talking about? Like people in the people in the theaters, like what, what? Like out loud. What? How are the cops this dumb? Like nobody can be that dumb. And there's stuff I even still didn't probably mention that anybody else that saw this probably uh, will. Uh, should you go see it? Sure. Why not? Go watch it in a movie theater. You might have a pretty good time. Uh, catch it whenever. Uh, my final grades for just like the construction of it. Um, shot for shot. It's a Bloomhouse film. It's okay. Okay. Um, you know, eight out of 10, like every Bloomhouse film. Uh, they've got a few cinematographers over there that are just allowed to do work. Right. Um, I would say there's no directorial vision in the camera <laughs> at all, probably. Um, so the, the camera guys just know what shot is going to be a good shot. They follow the storyboards um, and that it, it's just straightforward, you know, close, medium, a little bit of establishing. Not a lot you can do with uh, the sets on hand. It's like schools, schoolyards and that shitty basement. Um, the one or two shots I thought they would do with the basement. They did do kind of use the uh, single light that's coming in through the window. Um, not a stark stuff. I mean, there's unironically a lot you can do. What, what the, the things that you can do with a camera and three lights in any room on earth are functionally fucking unlimited. Um, if you have a good lighting person or just anybody that understands light, just have somebody that w what went to a museum twice in their life just two decent museums that have like a little bit of fucking baroque painting some fucking contemporary masters and they'll be like oh if i can just do that oh i can just do that it's fine it'll be smashed you'll, you'll smash it out of the park bloom house is fine not a lot of shots that i can really remember being cool um nothing impressive editing perfect perfectly good um sufficient I don't really think I, there's not much you need to do with editing in this effects are minimal to non-existent. Uh, there was one head chop looked good, looked great, looked fine. Um, can't really remember it. I think it might've been quick. might've been on screen. I think I saw his head fall in half. I think it was CG, but then they dropped it, dropped it right out of frame. Like a little bit of a mix of like CG and practical. Good. Um, the, Costume designs, I, I just gotta, I have to pick up, I have a bone to pick with this shit. I hate, there are pictures of the 1970s and 80s and 90s, right? And I don't know if there is just this intentional thing where people want to meet folks' expectations of those eras, but wearing graphic t-shirts was not a thing back then as much as it, as it is today I, I don't know maybe i might be thinking of stranger things with like every single character has a brand new graphic tee on at all points in time where they can just like always afford shit but especially if you're poor kids should be wearing like if you're in the 1970s for real if you are in the 1970s and you're making a film about poor kids they should be wearing clothes from the 1960s i'm dead serious their clothes should all be eight to 10 to maybe even 15 years old, depending on how poor they are. And they should be ratty as fuck because that's when all of my family grow up and I have pictures of them and that's what they look like. It takes until you are 
well into your first, maybe second job to afford enough money to get like nice, cool clothes and shit. Uh, just as a, as a nod, if dad, if you're in a single income family and dad is a fucking raging alcoholic, you're going to be dressed like an absolute animal all the time. Your clothes are going to look like shit unless that's like your biggest focus. Maybe that wasn't as much of a problem. And now I'm just thinking of fucking stranger things again, but honestly, it's kind of intermanageable. It's just a thing that you need to say about all of these, uh, period films. I think the big thing is, is in the seventies and then more into the eighties and nineties, people did start dressing individualistically, which is a, a big change. You know, before then you, you basically everybody shopped at Sears and fucking Roebuck and out of catalogs or they made their own clothes. So people were kind of just wearing the same shit all the time. Little kids had like, you know, whatever the fucking brown trousers and loafers and like a little bit of suspender action going on and like a white shirt fine whatever they all look like characters from batman the animated series <laughs> those kids they're all wearing paperboy hats all the time and maybe not even that's actually true but i just feel like people need to uh, start cracking open photo books and stuff in these costume departments and dressing the people like you know folks that you can see in street scenes and stuff from back then if you can because there is just a little bit too much pop cultural awareness and stuff and a little too much uh, individuality in the wrong way for back then. And maybe I would like it even more just either amp it up or go less. I don't know. I'm, I might've detract with this uh, sound sounds fine. Pretty decent. Um, start to finish. It's good. Bloom house is a solid production studio. So they're fully people got this probably cracked it out in a few weeks, sent it on perfectly fine there's nothing really interesting to hear anyway it's all suburban noises so you can make this entire soundtrack with some shit you got in your kitchen soundtrack was not great um i don't know why uh, i don't care why it was just uh it's just mm, didn't like it it's too samey a little bland uh and pointless oh and also fucking bloom house i will i do hold this strictly this is one of the reasons i'm fucking i hate this film um a little bit more than maybe some other people the jump scares in this movie are unearned and excessive in theaters and i mean to the point where even people i know who are like i don't mind a jump scare in a movie were like that was fucking unacceptable we watched this in just at, at a fucking Cinemark, a mall Cinemark, which is not going to be the best audio you've ever heard in your life or even super loud. Like the, the entire thing was, you know, mastered to zero, but mastered sub zero. So it just sounded like this, like me talking and the, 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 the jump scares. There's two of them. I definitely remember. I don't even know what hell happened in the scenes, but it's just like somebody walking in full blast unintelligible noise max max to zero like literally the fucking entire theater was shaking and they, they're like it scared the bejesus out of me because i live in america in 2022 and there is just terrorism and guns everywhere all right like i am a fucking ptsd adult veteran that is just too fucking much. It's just absolutely fucking unnecessary. And it also wasn't at a good jump scare moment. You know, like a, a good jump scare is the first drop in a roller coaster. All right. When the roller coaster finally overcomes the upward inertia or like the, the, the stationary inertia sitting at the top of the hill and just goes, 
That's the jump scare. You know what I'm saying? All of the lead up to that, the click, 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 click is what earns it. And this movie does not do a good job of maintaining any sense of uh, any sense of peril or um, unease. Most of that is because, like I said, what the guy is going to do to these kids is never explained. It's usually just a lot of it's the worst thing you could think of. It's the worst thing ever. It's the worst thing you could think of, which is just fucking lazy as far as I'm concerned at this point. And um, there's the kid just doesn't there's no moments really where the kid is clearly working against time or being very sneaky in a way where like, I know, you know, he could potentially be caught in, in, in a sensible way. And they just do a bad job of it. Even when he's sneaking out of the house, literally past the guy while he's asleep, uh, which is the most uproarious part of the film for the theater. Uh, the audience behind me, there was this one dude who was just like, just run, just run. And then his girl that he was with goes, no, stab him, stab him. And he said, no, bitch, you just fucking run. Just fucking go, fuck a knife. And the thing is also in that scene, Earlier, you are shown that there is a door behind Ethan Hawke where he sits and the front door is to the right. And the kid doesn't try to go out the door behind him. And I don't know if it's supposed to be assumed that there's just another bike lock on that door or that it doesn't really go outside, but he just uh, doesn't use it. A better film. Better films would have taken much more, uh, much more liberties with that scene, but it's just him sneaking and you know he's going to solve the damn thing. Cause that's the point is that he solves the, the puzzle on that. The, the, the fucking bike lock password is given to him without a clear indication of where the numbers are. So, you know, it's, it's whatever. And those are the locks that used to go in my locker in school. Uh, so they were a pain in the ass, but you know what the real thing is? Um, if you know anything about it, it's a, it's a cylinder master lock, black cylinder, black wheel master lock. Um, if you know anything about those locks and you've ever done, I don't know, any sort of um, non-toward activity, uh, if you ever see one of those, don't buy them. Um, all you have to do to knock them off is take any heavy thing, at, at, as, as long as it's at least about two pounds and about a foot and a half long, hammer or equivalent, you know, but like anything, a pry bar, a shovel, uh, a metal uh, award that you might find a kitchen mallet. As long as you can isolate the top part of it, you smack the top of those, they come open every time. The little hook is actually weaker than the thing that holds it, and it'll just poop and pop right open. We used to break into other people's foot lockers in the Marines like that constantly. That's why I'd never get those anymore. <laughs> but uh, that whole scene is just done. It could have been a lot of stuff, but it really just... It really just wasn't, and it's kind of it's kind of disappointing. So I'll say ultimately, kind of in closing with that, um, yeah, the writing is terrible. It's fun. It's a fun movie. I would only see it in theaters or with people. If you're alone, you might spend too much time thinking about it. I mean, we didn't even get out into the hall of the movie before we were all like, wow, I kind of enjoyed that. You know, the performances were great. And then we just started picking it apart and it wasn't even all me. I was like, my people I was with were mentioning things too, that I didn't even think of in the moment. And I, you know, you probably would have worked your way to after a couple seconds and vice versa for them. 
And we were all just like, oh, wait, yeah, that doesn't make sense. And like, what about this? And like, yeah, that's fucking stupid. And then why did they make that decision? I don't fucking know. How about those goddamn jump scares? The worst fucking jump scares on earth. But ultimately, I would say, hey, fuck it. It's a Bloomhouse movie. If you've seen a Bloomhouse film, that's not one of their better ones. Uh, any one of the mid Bloomhouse movies, Black Phone is mid. It's mid. It's okay. You'll probably enjoy it. Mid, high, mid for enjoyability, unlike Vivarium, which is mid, low, mid for being boring as shit. And uh, yeah, uh, check it out. I recently picked up a book on recommendation from a viewer called The Hollow Places by T. Kingfisher. I won't spend too much time talking about this one. It's a pretty decent book, but it doesn't really open itself to a lot of conversation, which is kind of the problem with things that are not quite perfect, where you have to justify why you absolutely love them and not quite bad, where you have to justify your criticisms of them, which I keep kind of running into with books lately. I keep hitting these, uh, these weird sevens and strange eights that are kind of just like perfectly fine forgettable bits of time to waste which is i guess what the hollow places is the book follows a woman named kara after her recent divorce from some guy they uh they break up and she is in the process of restarting her life after many years several years of marriage i can't remember and uh, it honestly doesn't really matter that much so to that end, she has to go and move back in with her uncle, or actually has to go move back in with her mom and then moves back in with her uncle because her mom sucks and is constantly trying to make her reconnect with the marriage, which is, you know, a minor thing in it. And while living at her uncle's place, she, which is a wild ass, right? Sideshow attraction in a small town above a coffee shop or next to a coffee shop or underneath a coffee shop. I can't quite remember. But the uncle's place is full of all sorts of roadside attraction stuff. So, you know, like uh, stuffed heads, made up animals, um, unique pieces of world history that are completely and utterly fabricated. But it's, uh, you know, like a fun place. And the uncle is like a quirky guy. And you spend like the first, God, feels like hour talking about the uncle and his, his, his establishment. It's a fairly short book. And um, Kara spends most of it doing interesting stuff, thankfully. Just basically getting into it. She eventually finds a hole to another world in this place. And I, you know what? I won't really spoil too much of it because there's not very much to talk about. And I feel like if I describe it too much, I will spoil it. But the hollow places are the area that she finds, which is kind of like an adult version of Narnia. It's very scary, but very, very interesting. It's... um a world between worlds. Uh, a lot of, a lot of references to CS Clark are made during this. And it is a, a creepy place full of weird holes and strange animals. And uh, eventually you find some dismembered and mutilated people that aren't quite dead. And you find out that a lot of this is because of something called the willows, which uh, it's not even a spoiler. They're just on the front cover of the book. Sometimes, but, um, that, that, that area is very interesting. And of course, like any book of that sort, it is about kind of learning more about that place and then finding a way to go home and then finding a way to coexist with the understanding of that place and, uh, being at home. It reminds me a lot actually of from a Buick eight, um, 
Stephen King book that I think fucking nobody has read. And if they have, none of them talk to me about it. From a Buick 8 was, I think, the last book that I purposefully read the second it came out from Stephen King. And that was when I was in high school. But uh, From a Buick 8 is about a Buick 8 that if you open the trunk, there's another world in it. And stuff comes out of it and stuff goes in it. And there's like curses and shit. And, you know, standard fare for Stephen King. What if you're not if what if your car could kill you? We already did that. That's Christine. What if your car's shrunk? could kill you. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's a pretty interesting book, start to finish. It's nice. The descriptions in the area are pretty cool. I will say this. If you get this book on audiobook, it is rough. The narrator is not particularly good. She has just not a bad voice. She just has a terrible cadence for audiobooks. It's kind of hard to put um, into more accurate terms than this. She seems like she makes her money doing voice work and is very competent at it. But the voice work she does is not the narration of novels. It's stuff like uh, reading out like automated messages for teleprompter services, maybe doing some light ad copy for local supermarkets and stuff, uh, that sort of thing, which she's perfectly fine at. But when it comes to her reading this, um, Kingfisher is a little sarcastic and a little tongue in cheek. And this book is written in the first person perspective. So you're inside the main character's head a lot. And she, you know, makes little quirky, sarcastic comments. And this woman's sarcasm voice is not a nice sarcasm voice where you're like along with the joke. She sounds like she's being like pissy and shitty with people all the time. <laughs> it's the only way to describe it. And that might not be your perspective, but I did. He I did see that that is uh, pretty common um, as far as the audible uh, as far as the audible reviews go. So. Just keep that in mind. I think the most interesting thing about this book is uh, how much like a Goosebumps book it is. Uh, I reread a Goosebumps book randomly two months ago. It took me, I think, five minutes. They are they are crushingly short, uh, which I don't remember from when I was two or two when I was in second grade, but uh, is very much the case. They are incredibly, incredibly short. And... This, uh, it was return to camp jelly jam camp jelly jam. I can't remember, but it's the one where they go to camp and they find out that the camp is on top of a monster and the grass is like monster fur. And like, it tries to eat people at the end. Cause it'll open its mouth and the campers will fall in its mouth or something. And I remember that being this very big story when I was a kid. And then when I reread it, I was just like, damn, that is it. What happens is he goes to the camp. He goes, wow, it's weird. Some of the camp counselors are weird. It's weird that this thing is here and it eats people. Okay, we ran away and we left. And now I'm alive to tell you about how weird it is and I'll never go to camp again. The, it That fast. It's crushingly fast. And this is like an adult version of it. So I would really recommend Hollow Places to anybody who is trying to get like a little, like a little fix. It's like a fix, you know, and be like, Hey, I want some horror and I don't want to think about it too much. I just not, 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 not much. And it, it's kind of like this. It's an adult goosebumps book. She is, she, you introduce her to the character. There's more character. Of course, you know, we actually get to meet some people, her, uh, partner slash good friend in this is the uh, gay barista who owns the coffee shop. I think if they own the coffee shop or at least gives away a lot of free coffee um, to Kara and that's her partner traveling into this other world. And then the other world's details are very interesting. 
obviously, as with all other world, this world stories, there is some sort of crossover that's happening. And as with all other world, this world stories, uh, when you find out that the crossover is happening, if it's a bad crossover, you try to end it. And if it's a good truck crossover, you try to, uh, probably, um, accommodate or uh hide it and so of course in this case it's definitely going to be the latter it is a horror a horror uh story so you know very similar to uh very similar in vain to like stranger things if you like stranger things uh upside down area but obviously have a different construction entirely however pretty similar actually now that i think of it considering just what is at risk and the threats involved in both of them but like i said i don't have too much to say about it you start it you finish it and it's done. I can barely remember some of the stuff that happened, but the stuff that I do remember sticks out quite well. And I enjoyed it. I played, um, Subnautica sub zero and listened to it for all of 11 hours. I think that it lasted and, uh, I enjoyed it. So go ahead, check out the hollow places by T Kingfisher, uh, today it's everywhere. You'll be able to find it anywhere. So with that, we're going to wrap up. This episode of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Hope you guys had a good time listening to me complain about Joe Hill yet again. I'm just going to, I swear to God, I'm just going to start fucking hate reading his books and talking shit because I enjoy the hell out of it. I don't know what pisses me off so much about him, but for some reason, uh, I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's um, every kid does fan fiction at some point, every writer at least does a little bit of fan fiction here and there, which is perfectly fine. Um, if you really think about it, most art to some degree is fan fiction. It is a uh, emblematic representative of the place where, you know, you come from creatively. So in my case, it is, you know, writers like Stephen King, ah, fucking RL Stein. Why the hell not? Especially when you get to like fear street and shit, not as not goosebumps as much, but yeah, that's where I started. And uh, in Dan Simmons and stuff. So, you know, I, especially with Stephen King, because he was so influential on my on my early development as a writer. When I started writing as him or when I started writing, I, I tried to, you know, write in his style and stuff and just try to write as close to it as I could. And I've done that with a few different people. And I've actually seen Stephen King uh, admit to doing that in his own work. He has one whole story. Uh, and I think it's. I think it's the full stars, full dark, no stars collection. If it's not that one, it's the other most recent collection. Well, not most recent, the other collection from like the mid 2010s, the one with like eight or nine stories. So it might not be that one, but um, he has a story that he wrote as his best he could in the style of Ernest Hemingway, which to me sounds nothing like Hemingway, but uh, to him, I guess that's what he most notices about it. And I'm not a huge Hemingway fan. So, you know, I wouldn't notice that much, but I am a gigantic Stephen King fan, no matter how much I give the old man shit. And I think it's just something about Hill so blatantly aping his dad's style to, I don't know, maybe make it feel like it's genetic and not just an intentional artistic decision that drives me up the wall because it's like a lot of the stuff that he does is some of the stuff that I like the most, but he does it wrong or he doesn't do the stuff that I feel like is the most important in Stephen King's work. And also I feel like he just lacks the background to do it right. King writes what he knows all the time. Right. And, you know, so obviously for his early stories, you see a lot of 
all kinds of anything in growing up in Maine. And then for stories in uh, his later life, it's just a lot of writers, which is fine because he's always got a good ground from where to write from. But with Hill, like, I don't know. I don't Rich kids can't live a real life. It's just impossible. You just can't do it. Especially if you're like fantastically rich. I'm not talking about you people whose parents made like up to 200 K or some shit like that. I'm talking about actual wealthy people, people who can afford to have mansions in multiple zip codes, people who, you know, get to go to the premieres of their own movies, rich people and their children. And a rich kid can never know ever. He can never know what it's like to be a poor kid because his parents aren't going to let him. He was just raised a rich kid. So he has to guess. And he's never going to know what it's like to be a blue collar worker. So he has to guess. And that's fine to a degree because everybody has to guess. You know what I mean? And I base all of everything that I write is a guess ultimately. But to a massive degree, all of what my guesses are based on are the shitloads of poor people and middle class people and blue collar workers and LGBT people and non-white people that I have met in my life. I've met so many fucking human beings and I've talked to them extensively, not as a writer, you know what I mean? Just like as like a fucking coworker, like you, you, Joe Hill could follow a line cook around for five years and write the most in-depth story he could about line cooks if he wanted, but you'll never know what it's like to have a line cook dad coming home at the end of the night. You know what I mean? At the end of shift six in a, a week of seven, you know, a seven day or seven shift week, you'll never know what it's like to be, to, to know a line cook as a, as a line cook, if you don't work like that and like, that's all you can do. Not when like, you know, like, Hey, I, I fucking did it for a little bit. And then at the end of the day, I went back home to being a millionaire, you know? No, I mean, you're a fucking line cook and you go back home to being a line cook and that might be it for you. That's as good as it gets. Maybe manager, but you hate managers. So you don't want to do it. Like you don't know what it's like to be a bus boy because you've never done it. And also the thing is, is you've never really done anything like that. You can't, you can't do it. Even if you get a job, a blue collar job, a retail job, the knowledge that you can quit is what makes it not hard work. Like if I made a billion dollars today and then I just started doing the same jobs that I did when I was in college, I just went and started trying to sell timeshares again. It is not the same fucking thing as when I was a kid selling timeshares and I'm not by a fucking site. It's not even close. It's not even a ballpark. Yeah, I'll talk to other timeshare people, but I won't know what it's like to go in there and be like, okay, I've got to try to grift people out of money so that I can pay for food. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't know what it's like to be like, all right, I have to either suck it up and clean these goddamn dishes that these fuck boys that came in at 11 a.m. I've got to clean these fuckers for the next three hours or I've got to quit and just see if I can make shit work for rent. I might quit. I might quit. But then you don't because you fucking can't. And then just add kids and shit on top of that. Like you'll just never know. And I think it sticks out so much in his writing. Um, and I see it in other uh, well-to-do people's creative endeavors. I much preferred the 1960s version of him, the um, 
the literati class, you know, you're uh, in cold blood, you're Truman Capotes and shit who didn't hide the fact that they were educated and shit and they would just be actively fucking ignorant. And they would say like, I'll never know what it's like to be a pig farmer waking up in Kansas on the morning of August 22nd, 1954. I'll never understand what it's like to crack the paper that morning, sipping my coffee and wondering what the day will bring, only to find that it brings seven dead bodies at the Clutter residence. You know, like, that, that just, it just makes, it sounds fucking better, too, because you're like, oh, yeah, I'm ignorant of it. But, I mean, hey, you could maybe imagine. You get what I'm saying? But with the kind of writing he does, you know, you've got to get into these people's heads. It's, it's first-person perspective. It's not third person reiterative, you know, like uh, third person journalistic where you can even say like, I have literally, I have a degree of separation from this. And so stuff I'm making is based on assumption. I might even be wrong, but this is just my opinion of this one thing. It just sounds better. Like I can just fucking, you can just hate Truman Capote and he'd be like, that's fine. I challenge you to box fucking. I, I like him too. Don't worry about it. But yeah, it just, it just doesn't ring true. It's so bizarre. The amount, cause you know, not everybody knows everything. And I have been told that I know too much shit by people. Very, it's a very common occurrence in my life when people would be like, why the fuck do you know stuff? And it's like, I just can't stop reading. I just consume shit. And I also had 16 jobs from the time I turned 14 till today, like literally 16, I think maybe more. Um, and they were all over the place. I've worked white collar sales. I've worked, worked blue collar trade professionalism or trade, trade professions, trade professionalism. I've worked blue collar trade stuff. I've, I've done strict blue collar laboring. I've worked for the fucking government. I've done journalism. I do this. And this is basically like seven or eight jobs combined into one. Like, and I have to talk to all sorts of people at those jobs. Like, yeah, I do kind of know what it's like to work in a car dealership because for fucking six months in 2015, I installed aftermarket parts in vans and trucks for a fly by night aftermarket parts installation company in, in fucking uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Like, and I would go in at nine in the morning and I would talk to these dudes about their days. And then I would, they are going to be more open with me because I'm not some fucking guy coming in to ask them questions about what the fuck they do. I'm the guy that has says hi, basically catches up since last time I saw them. And then I go lay out in a fucking parking lot in 95 degree heat or 25 degree ice cold fucking rain and put goddamn uh, step bars on new F one fifties and try to like fucking ream out holes so that I can put a goddamn cage in the back of a new animal control vehicle. You know what I'm saying? Like what the fuck, what, what did he do? My man just showed up after college and just started making shit. What the fuck? Like, what do you have to talk about? And I see that in all of his stories is not just this lack of knowledge, but this absolute lack of connection with the people that he writes about, which are the people that his dad wrote about. But his dad grew up the son of a fucking alcohol abuser in fucking rural Maine in the 19 whatever 40s and 50s and shit. And he just writes explicitly about that because everybody's going to be fucking direct with you when you're a little kid. 
Hey, you know, that kid guy, that guy got run over by a car there in 1935, and I can still see where his teeth are in the asphalt. Do you see? Yeah, no, you're just fucking with me, Mr. Jensen. Like, that shit is fucking real. But you don't get that when you go to prep school. You don't get that when you fucking just live this insane fucking life. And then the dude just changes his goddamn name to Hill. I, if I, if I, if my dad was Stephen King and I didn't want to get a real job, I too would become a fucking writer. Hell yeah. I guess if I wanted to go work at Tyson chicken and skip a few fucking levels of mid management to do work under whatever the fuck my dad does now, some sort of sales job I could do that. I could do that right now. My big like, daddy, could you give me a good job? <laughs> daddy, could you make some? And he'd be like, nobody helped him. Fuck off, man. It's just impossible to believe. It's impossible. He looks just like him. I am, too, a son who looks just like his dad. Exactly like his dad. My fuck, I, and we both look exactly like my little brother at different stages in our life. There's no one that's going around in the fucking literary world and looking at somebody that looks exactly like Stephen King and is also 6'4". And like they've seen this motherfucker at parties and shit and going to go, oh, no, that couldn't be him. And I mean, to the point, like, you know what he did grow up experiencing? The inside of the fucking the inside of the Hollywood fucking superstructure. They all did. They grew up inside media. And so now they just get to do it. And it's fucking lame. It's fucking lame. And it's it's ruining good shit for people. Anybody could do a better job. I swear to God, they could tell a more interesting story if they wanted to. I don't know. With that, thanks everybody for tuning in. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, 
former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.